0: And welcome to another edition of Sanctified Reason. Sanctified Reason is a podcast where Dan DelZell and myself, Son Edom, we talk about the things of this world through a biblical perspective. And, you know, Dan, I found a, an interesting story, and article that, well, I guess it's really not an article, it's like a happening, which I find really kind of complexing and a little interesting. And that is that apparently the Pope or some higher up in the Catholic Church, basically nullified decades worth of baptisms because a Catholic priest apparently used one word incorrectly. Apparently a guy that performed a baptisms throughout, you know, I guess thousands of them used or would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so therefore nullifying all those baptismals. And so what I thought we could get into, and I want to start off by maybe getting your comments on the specific story. But then I thought maybe what we can get into is talk about some of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the religious rituals that we go through in religion, you know, the Catholic church, the Christian church, and maybe touch on a a couple others and kind of delve into some religious rituals uh, for the conversation.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a a very good topic, Son. And uh, a couple of thoughts came to my mind when you mentioned that, that I had not even thought of in in relation to that story that I too had read. And so, yeah, this would be a fun discussion.
0: So we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit versus I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about before when it comes to baptism, There's some Christian denominations out there that believe in infant baptism, which is obviously kind of like the pouring of the water over the infant's head, so you're not really immersing. Then you've got others like the Baptist where there's full immersion and you have to cover from head to toe. And then there's some that I guess believe in the sprinkling, and so there is a debate even amongst the people that believe in baptism of the methodology of how you do it. But when it comes to words in this particular story, what's your initial thoughts on that whole idea of one word nullifies thousands of baptisms?
1: Yeah, you know, Son, I think it's unfortunate that the Catholic Church, not only in this example, but even when it comes to the Lord's Supper, um, they, they, they seem to treat these sacraments as though they're magic. Uh, they, they seem to treat, you know, almost like someone of a different spiritual view would look at like an incantation. Um, you know, uh, Christian baptism is to be done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the simple fact that this priest apparently used the word we rather than I, uh, I I, I suppose that might make a difference if baptism was magic. Uh, but, But the other thing they're also losing sight of is the fact that there are millions of babies who are baptized, and what they should really be focused on is... What's going on in the life of that individual today? You know, sometimes in evangelical circles, there is some, oh, maybe you could call it, um, you know, critique of people who've gone forward to an altar call in a Billy Grand crusade or somewhere else. And, you know, there have been many people who have gone on to live for the Lord and serve the Lord who were saved at a, at a, at a Billy Graham meeting. I was just, you know, reading this week of, uh, George Berber, who's a missions pioneer. He's a, he started operation mobilization decades ago. He's 82 today, but I actually got to hear George Berber speak at the Okaboji Bible conference in Iowa, uh, some, Oh, 30, 35 years ago. And he came with all of his free books to give away. And, uh, we can maybe talk more about that, if not today, maybe a later podcast. Uh, just a fascinating life. But, um, you know, George Ferber is, is someone who uh, was saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And, and and the reason I mention that is in the Catholic Church or in, you know, Protestant circles uh, where, you know, many have gone to crusades and so forth. It's not just about the experience that someone's had, either with baptism uh, or with an altar call. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, Son, there are disagreements among Christians about the mode of baptism, about the age at which a child is to be baptized. But what I would really like to hear churches and, and parents focusing on is what is being done to raise your child to trust in Christ alone as Savior, and to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So for the Catholic Church now to have this big, you know, big drama and and basically um, say to these thousands of people that it was not a legitimate baptism, I mean, what they should really be doing, Son, is helping all families parents and children alike, to understand the gospel, to understand that we're saved by grace through faith, because baptism doesn't save anyone, son. Without faith in Jesus Christ, you could be an infant. You could be an adult. Without faith in Christ, a person is not justified. Now, I know that some who uh, believe in infant baptism will say that well babies can believe and that's debated among christians what i wish those who say that would focus on is well what do these children and these teens and now these young adults in high school or college what do they believe i mean rather than focusing on whether they were baptized or not i mean look at martin luther he was baptized as an infant And, and i'm not Um, trying to knock any church's approach to baptism, because, you know, churches have conscientious views based on their understanding of Scripture. But, you know, we have to face facts here. Uh, You know, Martin Luther was raised as a Catholic. He was baptized as an infant. And he was spiritually lost for, you know, two to three decades of his life because he didn't know the gospel. And I'm afraid that the same is true in many churches today, son, not only, you know, Catholic churches, Catholic parishes, but also in, in, you know, other churches, other denominations, including mainline denominations and others, where maybe you have had a baptism, but you've not seen a conversion, you've not seen the fruit now being born, you've not seen a profession of faith. Uh, You know, I I know that in some churches they try to tackle that with, well, they have what was called confirmation. And the idea there is that the child would confirm uh, the faith. And and yet, what's interesting take, for example, in the Lutheran church, the high percentage of young people who, after confirmation, maybe 50% or more, even higher today perhaps, who, after confirmation, rarely step back in church. So, you know, to assume that because a child has been baptized, an infant has been baptized, let's say, or a child has been confirmed, those things can all work out just fine. I know in my own personal life, that's the way uh, my folks raised me. You know, my mom's, uh, her family was Lutheran. My dad's family was Presbyterian. And so we grew up in a Bible-believing Lutheran denomination. I was baptized as an infant, and I was uh, confirmed. But I'll tell you, son, you know, I I learned the gospel uh, from my folks. I learned the gospel uh, as I read the Bible. I grew in my faith, you know, during my high school years, and especially during my college years. So I'm not for a second suggesting that, well, you know, those who are baptized as infants um, are going to turn out this way or that way. I mean, look at Martin Luther. He was baptized as an infant. And i say he turned out pretty good, although he had plenty of warts, as everybody does. Uh, but look at how the Lord used him, unlike almost anyone in church history. And I say almost. I mean, you know, you've got the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, and you've got other key people. But few people were used like Martin Luther, the man baptized as an infant. But who didn't know Christ for decades. So that should tell the Catholic Church something, although they probably aren't gonna want to learn a whole lot from Luther. But uh, I, I think they're making much ado over nothing in a sense on, I mean, okay, so now they say we're gonna revoke these baptisms. Well, sit down with all these people that you have you know that you're talking about and find out. Do they even believe in Christ? Do they understand the gospel? Or is this just some big publicity stunt or some you know, um, just unfortunate tangent that's almost making their infant baptism seem like a magical might. That, well, we didn't quite say the incantation right. You know, almost like, well, you got to say it a certain way at the Lord's Supper, and then supposedly, um, you know, Jesus' body and blood are the only things that are there now. No longer bread and wine. Really? Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say Christ has to be sacrificed over and over and over again as is caught in the Catholic Church. So they've got a lot of theological problems, and uh, this to me is just kind of um, a symptom song of a much deeper issue, uh, the fact that they you, you don't hear a consistent proclamation of the gospel in the Catholic Church. And as I've said before, I can't ever remember hearing any pope articulate the gospel, including the current pope, Pope Francis. If they would come out and just simply say that all Catholics are sinners, and Jesus died for sinners, and were saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, not by works, I'd say, now there's a Pope who just proclaimed the gospel. But I haven't heard that. Um, they don't owe that to me. They owe that to their creator. And so there's a lot of issues in the Catholic Church, on that um, have unfortunately led many people away from a clear, uh, clear understanding of the gospel.
0: You know, if we're talking about verbiage and word use, one thing that comes to mind is marriage. You know, you often have that, that quote, I guess, at the end of a wedding ceremony where the minister's up there, and I'm not sure how they do it in the Catholic church because it's been forever since I've been to a Catholic wedding. But, you know, you've got someone up there saying the minister, um, and I'll use minister as an example since we're talking religion, you know, by the power vested in me by the state of California or the state of Omaha or whomever, you know, I now pronounce you husband and wife. But oftentimes you hear, you know, by the power invested in me by such and such, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And so obviously there's a verbiage there and there's a huge difference between invested and invested. And so you could look back at a number of things. And if you really want to get, get ticky tack, you could nullify and invalidate a lot of things based on a single word or word usage when it comes to that. So you're really starting to get into the silliness of it all. If you're going to be, in my opinion, canceling something because, you know, God looks at the heart. You know, I think it's uh, in Samuel, right? When, when uh, the verse goes, you know, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so I think taken from that is, you know, God looks at our intent. So just because uh, uh, a minister, might have misquoted, misused a word, or whatever. If the intent is there, I think that's one thing. You know, I think that's one thing when it comes to uh, how we approach. So, again, if you're debating baptism, there's many things we can um, debate about it. But let's just say that the parents in this case, in the Catholic Church, you know, they have a genuine um, yearning on their heart to bring their child to God, I think God is going to recognize that and honor that despite a missed word here or there by a priest performing a ceremony.
1: Yeah, you know, I I agree, Son. And it is the responsibility of churches and pastors to properly administer the sacraments, you know, to properly administer baptism. Now, again, churches view it differently in terms of the age and the mode, but a proper administration of baptism must include A a baptism in the name of the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where there's been a baptism and the religious leader has used the word "we" rather than "I." But if that had occurred, let's say, son, in a Christian, you know, let's say, a non-denominational congregation, or a Lutheran congregation, or a Methodist congregation, or a Presbyterian congregation, uh, personally, my own view would be that the baptisms that were performed um, would not be invalid because of that one word, although I would not recommend using that word. At the same time, I think the focus of a Christian baptism is in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So for me personally, um, you know, if, if, if I had, let's say, someone come to our church song and they said, wow, you know, I just read this report. And, you know, I'm one of those people. Um, I was baptized by someone who said, we baptize you. I personally would, would not feel compelled to say to them, well, then, you know, hey, uh, that, that doesn't count. You know, that, that's not a valid baptism. But I guess, you know, it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, everyone, I suppose, is going to have their own interpretation on. But, but let's face it, Son, I mean, baptism and the Lord's Supper have been the source of much division and differing views. But at the end of the day, you know, does an individual believe the gospel? And, and this is where I think the Catholic Church should be focusing their attention, not on trying to tell people that they had convinced to be baptized, oh, well, now I guess we didn't do it right, you know? So, um, you know, I mean, you know, hey, son, if if they had baptized, you know, let's say they had baptized those individuals in the name of Jesus only, which actually gets pushed today. I mean, there are actually Jesus only uh, folks who that's what their religious group teaches, uh, but that's not found in scripture. So if that had been done, And someone came to me and said, Hey, I was baptized in the name of Jesus. I would certainly encourage that person to be baptized in the name of the triune God. Or let's say someone said, uh, you know, Hey, I was baptized in a a Mormon congregation, you know, or in, in some other group that is not recognized by Christians to be a Christian group because they deny the Trinity. They teach a workspace salvation. Um, then of course, uh, you know that that individual should be, I believe, certainly led to a proper a proper uh, baptism that is a biblical baptism. But even then, some, you know, it would be critical that that person believe. You know, the Bible says, "Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned." So. It's not the lack of baptism that condemns a person. It's unbelief. But every time in the Bible, when you have people coming to faith, take the book of Acts, for example, um, the next thing is to be baptized. I mean, even Peter and John, you know, when uh, Peter was preaching there on the day of Pentecost, what did he say in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is to follow belief. Now again, I go back to um, what 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 some have said, and I I even heard this uh, you know when I went to seminary. You know, I heard people say, "Well, babies can believe," and and so that's you know if that's a hill somebody wants to stand on, and and you know and and, and assume that every single baby who is baptized, is now instantly a believer in Jesus, then that's something that some Christians choose to do. Um, Can they know for sure that that baby in their sinful nature did not deny the Lord? Can they know for sure that that baby that they claim has faith when they're baptized uh, doesn't somehow turn away from that faith when they're six or eight or three? Um, and, and so I've heard over the years, people, you know, son, trying to like build people up in their faith by just telling them you were baptized, you were baptized. When what I find the the predominant approach in Scripture is you were saved because Christ died for your sins on the cross, not pointing back to somebody's altar call experience, not pointing back merely to someone's baptism. Pointing back two thousand years, not to a subjective experience like an altar call, okay, or or to a person's baptism. And, and when I say subjective, there subjective in the sense that someone would say, "Well, we know for a fact that you came to faith and you were baptized, and therefore um, you can know that you're a Christian today." Well, what if the person isn't trusting Christ today? What if the person Is relying upon the law like they were in Galatia. What if Paul had said to them, But hey folks, you were baptized? Doesn't matter what you're believing about works righteousness, or if a priest were to say, doesn't matter what you believe about, you know, relying upon traditions. Or if a Lutheran were to say, Hey, you were baptized, that's it. You're saved. Just celebrate the fact that you're saved. You're 16 year old. Well, what does that sixteen year old believe? That 16-year-old who may or may not attend church, not that that, does, not that, that saves you. That 16-year-old who may or may not be walking with the Lord, um, if you're saved, you'll be walking with the Lord. If you're saved, there will be good hope. just to go around telling everybody, well, you know, you're baptized, so you're saved. Or, well, I guess we, we messed up the, uh, you know, the way we said it, so now we've got a problem. Well, how about going to the deeper issue? How about going to the deeper issue? You know, son, and then to back up my point, a study was done years ago with 5,000 Lutherans. i just use that, but I believe, son, this would be consistent in many, many, many groups, Catholic and many others. And they asked these 5,000 Lutherans, if you were to die today, you know, what, what is the basis of your hope of going to heaven? And surprisingly, son, these Lutherans who supposedly had been raised on hearing about God's grace and, and the gospel, Half of them pointed to their works as the basis of their salvation. Now, I wonder how many of them, they had been told over and over and over again, you're saved because you're baptized. You're saved because you're baptized. So why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, because I'm a pretty good person. So, so that sort of confession, sign does not reveal faith in Christ. It does not point to faith in Christ. It does not indicate that that person has faith in Christ. Even though they were apparently baptized, so this is not a knock on baptism. Be it infant baptism, be it child baptism, older child, be it adult baptism. The the, the bottom line son is that faith in Christ is what saves. And if somebody really wants to hang their hat on their firm belief that every single baby who's been baptized believes, okay. Um. What would you say about the millions of Catholics and millions of Lutherans and millions of others who were baptized as infants? Maybe they come to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe they never talk about the Lord. Maybe there's no indication that they're really walking with the Lord, that they know the Lord, that they're trusting the Lord. Oh, but they were baptized. Is that the goal of discipleship? Should we be telling people that, well, because you were baptized, we know you're a Christian. Or should we be telling people what Paul told people? And that is to unrepentant sinners, he preached the law, and to repentant sinners, he preached the gospel. But a lot of times, son, this this involves personal conversations with people. I mean, I'm amazed, son, you know, after serving as a pastor for almost 32 years, you'd be amazed over the years. Um, I remember one woman, and I won't go into the details to reveal, but in in a previous In a previous place where uh, I was serving, a woman way up in years who shared that it wasn't until she had heard the gospel that I was proclaiming in a Bible study that I was teaching that she really got it, that she really understood it. And actually, her daughter and son-in-law said the same thing, that essentially they'd gone to a Lutheran church, in her case, her whole life. But hadn't got it, you know, my own aunt here in Nebraska, same story, had been a Lutheran, but she did not understand the gospel. And, and so what I'm saying son, is there are many Lutherans and Presbyterians and, and, and Baptists who do understand the gospel. And then there are those who don't, but just because a person was baptized, just because a certain, you know, okay, so you used the right formula. It was a, it was a biblical baptism. Okay. Where are they at today? Well, they're baptized. They're baptized, so they're saved. Oh, you know that for a fact? Have you talked to them? No, we don't ever see them. They don't ever come to church, but I know they're saved. Oh, you know that for a fact? Well, yeah, because they're only eight years old, and there's no way they wouldn't still believe in in, in what they were baptized into. Do their parents talk to them about the faith, about Jesus? Do their their parents bring them to, to church, to Sunday school? Do their parents disciple them? Oh no, but they believe they were baptized. Well, I think that's a very dangerous way, sign for people to approach um, Christian discipleship of young people. I mean, go for it. Whatever your belief is about infant baptism or infant dedication, and if we're not going to respect a parent's decision on that, then I think we're off base. If you have your biblical reasons for baptizing your baby, or you have your biblical reasons, for dedicating your baby and waiting on baptism, um, that's that's your decision as a parent. The child can't make that decision. The child's only an infant. And if you want to choose to believe that your baby now believes in Jesus as an infant, hey, I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. But what about a few years from now? How much is your child going to be hearing about Jesus? And that's going to be the key son, because you know, people say, well, the light of faith was turned on in baptism for an infant. Okay. Great. But what about today? What about the last year? What about the last 10 years for this 30-year-old who hasn't stepped into church in a decade, but he was baptized? Oh, well, he'll come back to it. Son, many don't. Many don't come back to the faith in which they were baptized. That's Catholics. That's Presbyterians. That's many, many people. You have to be raised You know, you have to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That means training up a child in the gospel. I mean, it was such a thrill for for Tammy and I saw when our kids were young to hear them just confess, you know, know that Jesus died for their sins on the cross. I'm talking about like three years old or be young, young, young. And they've always known that because we've taught that to them. I'm not lifting us up as some perfect parents. I'm just saying you have to teach the gospel to your kids. They're not going to get it by osmosis at age five and age 15 and age 25. Do they go to church? No. Oh, but they believe in God. Okay, great. They believe in God. But son, um, to assume that just because a person has been through the sacraments of a church or confirmation in a church, um, unless that person confesses Christ as savior, and then there's going to be fruit. There's going to be good fruit that's going to follow. So anyway, um, that's, uh, that's my little <laughs> two cents on that one side. So probably was a lot more than two cents, but uh, there it is.
0: You know, Dan, we've got other sacraments out there, other rituals, if you would like. Um, sometimes people don't know what a sacrament is, but it's just a, um, a religious word describing things such as baptism, which we discussed. Uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, confirmation, which is something that the Catholics and Lutheran churches both participate in, but not so much like the Baptist or uh, you know other um, churches. Uh, reconciliation or confession, you know, confession of your sins. Anointing of the sick and marriage or matrimony. And then I think there's the holy orders or, you know, where you become like a, a priest or a clergy, you know. And so you've got these sacraments, these things that are, um, held sacred that you're supposed to do in order for your salvation to be, you know, cemented in. Mm-hmm. The biggest one is the Eucharist, the, the communion, the Lord's Supper, okay? Right. And, again, you're dealing with something that is obviously sacred no matter who's participating in it. But, yes. But then, again, you've got a division. So let's get to the the Christian church, for example, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a division. You have people that will have communion every week. There's other Mm -hmm. churches Mm -hmm. that will have communion once a month, like on the first, you know, Sunday of the month. Some really prominent uh, Christian churches only have it at Christmas and Easter or maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe Mm -hmm. a, a special time. And then you have the debate, which brings the Catholic church into it, whether it should be bread and wine and whether it should be a wafer and grape juice. Again, depending on your you know, uh, theological denomination, you might have some varying degrees. And so again, one of the, and again, this is the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Eucharist is something that both the Christian church and the Catholic church participate in. But again, when you're dealing with these variants, to me it seems like that's the same thing as a word. Because I always thought that I baptize you in the name, I thought it was the priest that was doing it or the, the pastor doing it, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like the pastor gets up there and preaches the message, you know? Mm -hmm. I always thought he was claiming that I do this in the name of, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have these different things. So again, when we're doing a ritual, so to speak, of the Lord's Supper, we have these variants anyways in there. And so wouldn't that be cause for concern, thinking that maybe one ideology of theology is doing it wrong? Or does it go back to, again, You know, God looks at the heart as long as we approach the Lord's Supper with reverence um, towards what it means and the sacrifice and the bloodshed and the broken body and the confession and the salvation, um, because you can't be saved through the communion, but you recognize what that means. I think God looks upon that, whether or not it's in... um, a a ceremony through a ritual through bread and wine or grape juice and wafer.
1: Yeah. You know, son, what we find in scripture is that the Holy spirit calls ministers to serve congregations and to properly administer the sacraments as part of their ministry. Now the Lord's supper, of course, is part of that. I mean, baptism, you know, baptism is something that happens. At, at the point of when you're coming to faith in Christ believe and be baptized um, as we've already said you know for for some Christian families that that includes and they the there are biblical verses that are um, seen to support uh, you know the baptism of, of infants I mean whole households were baptized and so forth that's a big debate and you know not not to get into that as much as to address your point here and that is with the Lord's Supper, which is not just a, a one-time, you know, thing like baptism. Um, and then you get into the frequency of the Lord's Supper and the proper administration of the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's not, I'll have people tell me, hey, you know, I, I attended this Catholic church for a wedding or this or that. And, um, or maybe I went with a friend or whatever. And uh, in fact, this just happened uh, at Christmas time. I know somebody who said to me they, they went with a relative And they said, but all they served us was the bread. They didn't serve us the wine. And I've heard of that, you know, on multiple occasions on it. I I would simply say you don't find that in Scripture. Um, You don't ever find the Bible um, prescribing just giving the bread but not the wine, that 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 would somehow be a proper administration of the Lord's Supper. You never find that. So that's a man-made alteration that um, I would say, is not at all a proper celebration of the Lord's Supper, along with any other messed up theology that that group might have regarding the Lord's Supper. So that's one issue. But then you also touched on the frequency of the Lord's Supper. And this, of course, there is variation among uh, Christian churches today. Now, there wasn't variation in the early church. In the early church, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, you know, every Sunday. Um, That's a fact. That's what they did um, when the church first got started. Uh, that's not to say that a church is sinning uh, if they celebrate the Lord's Supper every other week or once a month. I mean, they have to follow their conscience and what they believe God is leading them to do. Now, I know in the church I'm blessed to serve Son at Redeemer. We we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And, and for this simple reason. Um we believe that it deserves to be on the first string. You know, if you have a if you have a team song, let's say a basketball team. I, mean, I played basketball in high school, and and um, you know, I wasn't on the first string, so I sat on the bench a lot. Um, I was not a first string player, and the first string is in there now. Most Christian churches have preaching on. The first string and they have worship on the first string and they have prayer on the first string but many christian churches do not have the lord's supper on the first string now that's not saying that they're denigrating it or they're disrespecting it that's their choice to do it every other week rather than first string for every month or every quarter okay it kind of goes down to sign how important you view it to be for the believer and over the years on and i haven't always you know been a part of that weekly celebration even as a pastor but 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 uh i reached a point here a number of years ago maybe something like 10 15 years ago where i just said hey you know um what would be some reasons why we might want to consider having the Lord's Supper every Sunday? And one of the things that led me to that side, actually, more at, at that point, even than just the, the theology of it, was the power that we were receiving. You know, every time we would have God's presence so powerful through the word, the preaching of the word, um, then to be able to follow that up by a celebration of this meal that that focuses on jesus's death his body and blood being given for our salvation and then to receive his his body and blood in the bread and wine too and there's all sorts of different ways that people describe that i mean jesus talked a lot about he said unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you talking there about faith i mean the bottom line is on christians are eating the blood of Christ and drinking his blood 24-7. It's a spiritual eating of the physical Christ. And I know that might blow somebody's mind. Um, there's a, but it's a, it's a spiritual eating of the physical Christ. That's what John 6 teaches. And, and and that's why the Jews who were hearing that message, they were they were so angry at Jesus because it didn't make any sense to them. Um, so I think what we want to teach people, Simon, before we teach them about the Lord's Supper, teach them about the fact that they're eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood 24-7. It is a spiritual eating that never stops. Now, I can't understand that fully, but I believe it because Jesus Jesus taught it. Read John 6. Anybody, you know, if you have a question on that, read John 6. Everyone who eats the, the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood has eternal life. So then we come to the Lord's Supper. It's that's a, a celebration, a participation in the Lord's body and blood. We who are forgiving, you know, some people have this notion. I think, Son, because um, I've certainly seen it in Lutheran churches over the years. And I'm sure Catholics have this notion. Well, we go to the Lord's Supper because we need to shore up our forgiveness. I'm kind of short on forgiveness today, and so um, I need a little more forgiveness. But read the Bible. Forgiveness is not given out in parts. Believers are completely forgiven from the moment of conversion, the moment they are saved, redeemed, justified, born again, and forgiven through faith in Christ. And that's when you begin to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, according to John 6. So what we have found at Redeemer is that a weekly celebration helps us in our worship, not merely because they did that in the early church, although that's a a great example to follow. You know, I mean, if the Holy Spirit led them to do that, hey, that's good enough for me. Um, But I think it also goes to sign how you look at it. If if you kind of, in, in your mind, just relegate it to the second team or the third team, well, then sure, celebrate it every other week or once a month or once a quarter. If it's not a first string player in your mind if you don't think that the benefits of it are enough for people to need every week. And what I, what I mean by that side, uh, there is spiritual power and a strengthening of faith that Christians receive when they celebrate the Lord's supper. And I'm talking about people who are already forgiven. Now, what am I, what do I mean by that? I mean, a believer, a believer is already forgiven, already forgiven. A hundred percent of their sins are already forgiven. Now, you know, in many churches, um, believers will confess their sins earlier in the worship service and then go to the Lord's Supper later. So, you know, whatever whatever your church, whatever your service is structured at, if you're a Christian, you have complete forgiveness. So, yes, we should confess our sins to the Lord, for sure. But this idea that, well, forgiveness is given out in parts, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And the Bible teaches this stuff, is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And the body and blood of Christ is something that you as a believer are already participating in. The, let me put it this way, Simon. The real presence of Jesus is inside every believer. The real presence of Jesus is inside every believer. That's what the Bible teaches. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yes, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, to be sure. So also, Christ indwells every believer. And with Christ there, son, what a person is doing is they're eating his flesh and drinking his blood 24-7, spiritual eating of the physical Christ. I didn't say the sacramental Christ. In the Lord's Supper, there's an added element to this eating and drinking. So the body and blood are, are introduced. And Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. So that's a sacramental eating of Christ's body and blood. But but, folks, you know, and this is what kind of, this is amazing to me in the history of the church. All the debates that have gone on, you know, it was Luther and Zwingling, you know, 500 years ago. But I mean, you've, you've got them going on today. All these debates about well, does the body, does the bread and wine represent Christ's body and blood, or is it really Christ's body and blood? And then you've got the Catholic, you know, Catholic saying that you know, it's no longer bread and wine; it's only body and blood. Well, you know that's not biblical. Um, Jesus said, "This is my body. This is my blood." And when people want to argue about whether it is symbolic or whether it is literal, um. What that tells me is you need to start with John 6. You need to first figure out what you believe about John 6. Well, well, what do you think is happening 24-7? And if you don't believe that that you are eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood 24-7, then I would love to sit down with you and and, and share with you why um, it is clearly taught in John 6 that that's happening. So now, if Christians want to debate over that one moment, you know, once a week, or if you celebrate communion twice a week, I mean, twice a month or once a month, okay? And people want to get in this big debate about does it represent or is it real? Let's talk about John 6. That'll help you to see that it's not a point you need to argue. And, and if somebody is going to deny the real presence of Jesus in the soul of every believer, then they, they don't understand scripture on this issue. And, and so, you know, they're probably going to get, you know, the Lord's Supper wrong too. But, but, but I'll just conclude by saying, Son, there are many devout believers throughout history, and especially, let's say, over the last 500 years, who've come down on different sides of that issue. Does the, uh, the, the bread and wine represent Christ's body and blood, or is it Christ's body and blood? And I would propose, Son, that I think if those divisive conversations had started first with John 6, many of them would have come away and said, you know what thing we agree on? we agree that we're having a spiritual eating of the physical Christ, or at least a spiritual eating of, of Jesus. They don't want really to use the word physical. I mean, he said, you know, you eat my flesh and drink my blood in John 6. It's a spiritual eating of Christ, okay? And, and, and most Christians, I think, if push came to shove, would say, yeah, I guess I do believe that. Okay, so you believe that you're eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood 24-7. Yeah, I guess that's what the text says. So you want to argue with fellow Christians about those three three seconds? When you are receiving the bread and wine, um, I mean, you know, even those sons who want to push for, you know, it has to be literal and everything, everyone who believes it's symbolic. I mean, they're just way off base. Even those people will say, you don't swallow Christ's blood. You don't chew his flesh. So anyway, it's so technical with it. And make it such a divisive, divisive issue that people don't even you can't even understand that distinction. I mean, son, we got we got half of the kids being confirmed who aren't even coming to church and, and people want to debate, you know, the you know, the semantics of that, those few seconds of, of, of the week. I mean, come on, folks, let's wake up if we're not discipling our kids from the time they're little, catechesis in the home. You know, this, this, this catechetical training, this, this instruction, and that just simply means you're, you're teaching your kids the Bible, which, by the way, you know, when Martin Luther put together uh, Luther's catechism, it was intended to be taught by the head of the household to the children. And I don't care if a person is in a Lutheran church, a non-denominational church, whatever church you're in. It is the responsibility of parents to teach their kids the word, to teach them the gospel. And if you just leave that to the church to do, you are probably going to end up being one of those families where the kids will go through those rituals, which is where we started today, son, with the Catholic rituals. They'll go through those. They'll get baptized. They'll get confirmed. You may see them again when they get married and when they get buried. But if you don't teach your kids the word, or if they don't at least somehow then get it, say, at college or later in life from you or from someone else, you think having them baptized and confirmed is going to guarantee their salvation? I mean, how are kids saved, son, if they're nowhere to be found around, um, you know, what Acts 2.42 says, son, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, which is one of the reasons I believe that weekly communion is a great thing. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Um, so they were devoted to those things. I like to call those the big four. So if you have a young person, teenager, college student, 35-year-old, and they have no interest in participating in the life of God's church, then what that would indicate, Son, is that there, there doesn't seem to be any hint, really, uh, of much spiritual activity at all. And I know any of us as parents would want to give our kids the benefit of the doubt if we're in that situation, and and who wouldn't? And and we'd want to believe that our child's a believer even though they don't go to church. Okay, and there are people like that, of course. But but so on. There are many, many, many people who do not understand the gospel, and that's why they don't gather with other Christians, because they're not being motivated to. None of us would be. I wouldn't be. You wouldn't be. And, And so we've got to teach people the good news, that God loves us, and even though we're sinners, Christ died for us. And by trusting in Christ, we're saved, redeemed, born again, justified, and forgiven. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we baptize. You know, that's why we, we preach the gospel. And and so um, when we think about this article that you, you've started with here today, uh, it's just so ironic to me now that the Catholic Church there is going to have the nerve to say, oh, these baptisms don't count. We didn't, we didn't say the right incantation. Well, you look at it as an incantation if you want. But in the Bible, it is a holy, um, it is a holy action. Baptism is holy in the Bible because it's God. It's God then coming, Song And, and you know, the Bible talks about in Hebrews, our hearts being uh, cleansed from a guilty conscience. And, and, and our bodies being washed with pure water. Um, so baptism is holy for every believer who is baptized. And I would say, son, uh, baptism can be just as holy for a family who chooses to baptize their child. I mean, that happened in my life. I believe that was a holy event when that happened. But I, I, you know, when I was an infant and I believe my folks were honoring God by doing it because that was their conviction. That was their belief based on scripture. And others have a different belief based on scripture. And I see God working through both of those in different families, different denominations who have a different view on that. But I tell you, son, if I had not been taught the gospel in my home, and as I grew up, um, I could have been like Martin Luther for all those years, and maybe never, maybe never come to understand Christ. And I fear, son, that this is what's happening to many, 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 who they've, they've, they've done all the, the family knows how to do, but maybe the family wasn't taught How to educate your kids, how to teach your kids, how to lead your kids to know the gospel. Because where are those kids today, son? In Presbyterian and Methodist and Catholic and Lutheran and other homes, you know, Pentecostal, where are those kids? Some in, you know, some in some real fundamentalist upbringings, hardcore upbringings, where the, you know, the law was heavy, heavy, heavy on the kids. No, no gospel, no grace. I mean, they're going to be the toughest ones to ever reach now. Or those who grew up in some hardcore Catholicism or hardcore, you know, Protestant setting where it was all legalism, let's say. So religion is not going to do it. It's going to have to be the gospel. It's going to have to be God's grace. You're going to have to give your kids room to breathe. You can't just force this. But I'll tell you, son, when you when you make this a part of the daily life of a child, they, they get it. It, it. it soaks in. But it, it, it's, a, it's a thousand times more than just think, well, we had our child baptized, and we'll have them confirmed. I guess we're doing our job. Well, um, it's very likely. If that's, if that's their attitude, son, the child will, will just uh, fly the coop, meaning fly the church. Once, uh, once mom and dad aren't there to maybe take them, um, they're going to fly the coop because they have not made it personal in their own life. And that's what has to happen for Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. Um, like my aunt, who was Lutheran, but she never got it. Like those few people I referenced in the church a, few, a number of years ago. They'd gone to Lutheran churches for decades, but they said it was only when we heard the gospel that you we were sharing through this Bible study in Romans that we got it. Uh, but not, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. That's happening all around the world today. Wherever wherever men and women, pastors, missionaries, others, wherever men and women, wherever young people, and there are many young people, share the gospel People are coming to know Christ, and we praise the Lord
0: for that. You know, Dan, one of the more comical, I guess you can say, uh, to me anyways, sacraments is that of marriage. I know that uh, in the Catholic Church it's a sacrament marriage, and the Catholic Church believes oftentimes that works can get you there, and it's a combination of the sacraments and works and stuff. So how does a priest get to heaven if he can't marry? I find that kind of uh, a humorous contradiction. But there again is just an example of when you start to focus on the works aspect of things or us doing it, you know, you can get into this, like you can go down the rabbit hole. One word, we baptize you, nullifies, you know, thousands of baptisms, Um, whether it's bread or wine or wafer and grape juice, you know, whether it's um, a marriage or not marriage. You know, the whole thing is when you come down to these, you know, religious ritual type things that we do, we have to be really careful that we don't allow them to be the prominent things in our lives. I mean, you've got like even religions like uh, Mormons, you know, they've got special undergarments that they that they uh, wear. And then you can even go from there where other religions uh, and beliefs have rituals and things that they do. And again, if we start to look at those things, those rituals as the reason why we're going into the afterlife, then we are completely missing the boat on the entire reason why Jesus came here.
1: Well, that, that's that's right, Son. And, um, you know, Tammy and I are blessed. Uh, our four kids are all in their 20s, 29 down to 23. And it's only by the grace of God that they all know the Lord. They love the Lord. Um, and they're in church every week, not because they have to be, but because they want to be. Um, but more than that, son, they, they seek to serve the Lord every day and pray every day and, and, and go to God's word. Now, again, I'm not raising them up as some perfect Christians because they're all perfect Christians. I'm saying this thing is doable. Um, discipleship in the home is doable, but, but it has to happen consistently for those 18 or so years that you have with your kids in the home or whatever that turns out to be, you know, more or less. Um, but it has to happen. Those first five years are critical what what you're what you're telling your kids now again there are many kids who didn't have any of that for 20 years you know maybe they grew up in an atheistic home and they came to christ so i mean certainly that happens but i'm talking about you know the and you mentioned the rituals we cannot rely on rituals we have to rely on the word of god we have to rely on the gospel um and, and, and we're all imperfect. We're imperfect as parents, imperfect pastors, imperfect churches. There is no such thing as a, as a perfect church. It was an interesting song last night at our, uh, at our Bible study, a home Bible study, with about a dozen people there. We were going through the letter to the church in Philadelphia, one of the seven letters in the book of Revelation that the Lord gave. And he gave them through uh, John, uh, who uh, wrote Revelation. And he had this, this vision, uh, of things that are, are going, gonna, going to be happening there, uh, at the end of time, but also, um, this message to the churches that Jesus gave. And so of those seven churches now, um, two of them, son, two of those letters had no corrective teaching from the Lord. In, in other words, these were faithful people. Um, they weren't perfect, but they were faithful. So to the, to the church in Smyrna, these were actual cities in Asia Minor. A, a, Asia Minor, actual cities. Um, there in that day, and so the, the church in Smyrna. Just like in, you know, the epistles were written to you know those in Galatia, those in Ephesus, those in Rome. Well, this was a letter to those in Smyrna, and then those in Philadelphia. And what's interesting about Philadelphia, son, is it was a small congregation. And yet, the Lord had nothing corrective to say to them. So it, it had nothing to do with their size. You can be a large congregation and be faithful, or not, or have a lot of people who aren't, or you can be a small congregation and be either way. But in this particular case, it's interesting that the last thing the Lord was was wanting to promote was well, you got to be a big church. Um, you know, if, if God blesses you to have a big church and and uh, people are following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Then yeah, that's going to be great. That's going to be wonderful. But I simply am pointing out that this letter to the church in Philadelphia was to a small congregation, and the Lord decided to give it such a prominent place there among the seven churches, just like with Smyrna. So it is about faithfulness. It's about obedience to the Lord. And the only way you're going to you know, be faithful to the Lord and be obedient is you're going to have to be grounded in the gospel. You have to to know this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Romans. It's not something that we can drum up with our rituals and assume that everybody who's gone through the ritual is now justified before God. Um, Well, Luther went through the Catholic rituals. Luther even tried to punish his own body to make his sins go away. But he had no peace until he he rested in Christ alone. And and that verse that that God just used in his life, uh, just dramatically, Son, was Romans 117. It says, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther said it was like heaven opened up, and it was like I was born again, like I entered paradise. And you know why? Because he was born again. He was redeemed there then at that time, in that moment. He was saved. Now it was a process getting there. I mean, he was digging into this stuff, and but but son is just like with physical birth. In that sense, there is a point at which your baby is born. Now there's that time leading up to that, but we don't talk about a baby being born until you know we even say where was, was the child born? Well, six eleven, you know, on Tuesday, January nineteenth, or whatever it might be. And so spiritually, um, when a person is born again, conversion song is instantaneous. Now, you don't have to be able to pinpoint the time you were converted. What matters is, are you trusting in Christ and what his work on the cross and not your good works to save you? And then if you are, you'll be living for Christ. And wherever you're not living for Christ, the Holy Spirit's convicting you of that and you don't feel good about it. Because Christians do not feel good about sin, and especially deliberate sin. You don't have peace with that. And if a person has peace with deliberate sin, that is not a good indication that the Holy Spirit is living within them, or that they are eating Christ's flesh and blood 24-7. Because it it just doesn't work that way. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, You know, King David was miserable when he was living in sin. And, And, you know, he said the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. You know, he, he was just absolutely miserable. And, and that's what happens to us when we, when we sin. And, and that's, that's a good thing, son. It, it's like, you know, if your child touches a hot stove, you, you sure want your child to feel that instantly. You don't want their hand to be callous or something where they don't feel that. Um, you know, and so the Christian, God gives us the sensitivity to sin that we need. Now, many times we don't, we don't always follow that. We, we uh, you know, we give in to temptation or, or we do something and say something we shouldn't do. But when we do that, then the Holy Spirit is there to convict us and um you know we can thank God for that. But but yeah, Son, this is I think this is such an important thing we're discussing today. And and we just want to tell people, you know, none of us get this right all the time, not as parents, not as individual Christians, not as churches, not as pastors. You know, if God only accepted perfect people, then none of us would get in. But but what what God does want is he does want us to focus on the perfection of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And then let that work in us, even as the Bible says it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his, his good pleasure. So so that's what, what's going on, son, in our hearts and lives. That's what we, we can we can bring into the lives of our children from a very young age. And just one last thing, one of the many ways, son, that Tammy and I were able to bless our kids, um, I would lay my hand on their head from the day they were born, and pray the uh, Aaron's blessing, the ironic blessing from the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So in addition to teaching the kids about Jesus and talking with them all the time about Jesus and letting the kids witness parents and kids, you know, apologizing to one another when we've done something wrong and, and giving the kids room to breathe spiritually and not, not just having some unrealistic expectation of them. And again, falling short in all those areas, but those were things we aimed at. And God used it and God blessed it. And among those, praying literally thousands of times over each one of the four kids, that ironic blessing. Son, there are things we can do to raise our kids to love Jesus. And and, and if parents will start, if they will start the day their child is born, really before that, you know, praying for them before that, it's going to take a lot of prayer and, and a lot of teaching, meaning just a lot of instruction. And when you get it wrong as a mom or a dad, you know, Say you're sorry to your spouse. Say you're sorry to your kids if you get it wrong. Um, and yes, you're, you're to the, you're, you're the lead them. I mean, they're not the parents you are, but you have to demonstrate um, humility as well. You know, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. So if, we, if somebody just wants to be this, this uh, you know, this hard teacher that's just there, this disciplinary, um, it's that sort of fundamentalist approach as a parent or in a church it probably does more damage than almost anything, son, to a person's just, they just the potential for them to ever come out of that. I mean, that does so much damage to the soul uh, of an individual. So we have to ask God to let us be as tender as possible, but certainly we, we also have to teach him the boundaries. You know, when you mentioned the Catholic thing, son, about marriage, you know, um, and we're talking about proper uh, baptism, proper word supper. Well, anybody who performs, let's say, a marriage between two people of the same sex, that is not a biblical marriage. Now, now, the state might recognize that and does now, you know, in America, but but that's not a biblical marriage. God doesn't recognize that in heaven as marriage. Um, and I'm not bashing people who've done that. I'm just saying there, there are there are boundary lines God has set up for sexuality, for marriage, for raising kids. And it's not intended to oppress us, but to liberate us. And even if we think we know better than God, Um, And we don't know what to do with certain desires that we're having. If we decide to color outside the lines, we're going to find out it doesn't work. I mean, God God has the plan. And and if we want to just toss that aside, well, we do so to our own demise. And, and, And so I'm just so thankful, son, that we have God's word to give us these lanes that he wants us to walk in. To walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And you and I have talked about that a lot, you know, in the podcast. So.
0: Dan Delzell, my guest, with us as we talk about these religious uh, rituals and uh, what they're about and how we go through them. And, again, the main focus being that, you know, we don't let the rituals be the focus of our spiritual life. We have to focus on the cross, on Jesus, and realize that Jesus is the one that came and died on the cross to save us from our sins. And, Dan, we thank you, as always, for your time And we appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. And we look forward to many more conversations as the year rolls on.
1: Well, Son, thank you for your wonderful ministry for the Lord. And and just all the wisdom that God gives you and and just the direction that that you are going with this this podcast. I think it's a beautiful ministry. I'm just so thankful to be a part of it with you. And uh, we'll sure look forward to, to many more of these discussions.
0: And for those of you listening, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend. You can always find us at uh, RadioWarp.com. That's Radio Radio W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. Until next time, God
1: bless.